Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. And I've got a great stream with a great guest that I think you're really going to enjoy. So we hear a lot about immigration. Obviously, it's a huge issue right now. We've got the showdown at the Texas border. A lot of people are talking about what immigration policy could possibly go going forward, restrict what is happening to the United States, whether they should take the deal that had been floated through the Senate, all this stuff. So I thought it would be very valuable at this time to go back and look at the real history of immigration in the United States, because we hear a lot about how the uh, United States is, uh, is a nation of immigrants and that you know we've kind of always had this policy. It's always been the same, but that's not true. There's been very different attitudes and ways that immigration has been handled throughout U.S. history, and I don't think any one of them is particularly the American way. And so I want to go through and look at the history of immigration in the United States. And doing that with me is a member of the old Glory Club. He's a great YouTuber and a historical genius. Ryan Turnipseed, thanks for joining me, man. Yeah, thank you very much for having me back. Absolutely. I know people are going to be like Ryan, the hair, and I'll be like, I have been telling them his historical powers are contained in the hair. It's like Samson, if he cuts the hair, he loses all of the history autism. And so we have to, you know, I understand. But we we uh, we for for the greater good we need Ryan's superpowers he has to continue uh, to to have that history. All right, so uh, just just to jump in here at the beginning, man. Um, I, I think the most common thing we hear is America is a nation of immigrants. It's a nation of immigrants, and it's easy for people I think to you know to to go with that because like oh well it's the new world right it was founded and all these people from Europe came over. Uh, obviously there, there were some people here. And so, you know, there's, a, there's some displacement involved. Uh, but a lot of people think of that as, as kind of the, the justification for calling it a nation of immigrants. However, I think it's important at the outset to set the difference between an immigrant and a settler, because I think those are very different mentalities. Uh, yes, technically both of them are moving to a new area, but an immigrant is doing something very different from a settler. So could you explain at the outset just kind of what that framework is? What's the difference between an immigrant and a settler? Uh, right. So this is a this is something that we don't really see anymore just because there's not as much unclaimed land, especially not by uh, governments and other world powers. But uh, once upon a time, this was a very... Uh, uh, settlers were once the source of most uh, great empires' power. Uh, they were the people that were willing to risk life and limb, money... Uh, their progeny, uh, material, and whatever else, any social standing perhaps that the venture was seen to be uh, foolish or whatnot. Um, and they were going to go out to the unsettled frontiers, at least uh, by these great powers, unsettled in terms that there was obviously not any major infrastructure. There were certainly no uh, large civilizations to accept them and welcome them into, uh, into communities. They were going to go out to these frontiers and actually build cities, build trading posts, ports, uh, they, they were going to do things that benefited their empires from which they were coming from, or they were going to do things for their own community's benefit. So not everything had to explicitly be for the furtherance of empire. You have quite a lot of especially religious uh, motivated settlers early on in American history, because if there's no one there, no one's there to persecute you for your specific weird beliefs or, or whatnot else. There's no established church that's going to come knocking at your door about uh, the crazy things that you were telling to the, to the people in the village. Um, as contrasted to an immigrant uh, who is specifically going from one civilization to another. Uh, they, are not, they are not building anything anew. They are not establishing these new cities out on the frontier necessarily. Uh, they are going from uh, settled location A to settled location B. Uh, but this would be the main difference, I think, that we want to draw here. So um, not to jump the gun, but um, English settlers in the uh, 1500s, 1600s going to, uh, going to the eastern seaboard of the U.S., usually are going to be settlers until the colonies are established, in which case you get waves of immigration there to do commerce and whatnot. Um, whereas the, every single person after, say, the frontiers closed in the United States, at least, um, would technically be considered an immigrant and usually would be by our definition. 
Um, if there's no frontier for people to settle, there's not a lot of uh, new land for you to go and stake and develop. Uh, you're going to have to go through any means like you would in the old world. You're going to have to buy up land, get the correct uh, permissions and whatnot, and if you want to start something there, then that's your prerogative, and you can always recede back into civilization very easily if something goes awry. Yeah, I, I think that's really critical because there's this weird dichotomy. In some ways, we hear you know the United States is this nation of immigrants, but at the same time, we also have this frontier mentality. The United States has always been de uh, defined by its settler, uh, uh, by its settler identity, by the way that it pushed westward, the way it settled the frontier. And that was ongoing. So there were waves of people who were immigrating in the sense that they were just moving into New York or Chicago or other cities that had been long established and there was nothing for them to do but simply you know, take up a job there, that kind of thing, live in a, in a very uh, well-established uh, city. At the s same time, there were people who were at the frontier and were settling and were creating new civilizations. And so America is going through this wave after wave uh, scenario where the first group comes and they are a true settler culture you know they are building the very first settlements in the united states the first colonies they're settling up setting up civilization there and as they push further westward and and things are safer and there's an establishment of civilization then you could start to see the next wave as immigrants but many of those people then would turn into settlers they would move further west and so a very long time there, there was this this frontier settler culture that was happening, you know, that dynamic was occurring as people were also immigrating. And so I just want to dispel that myth early on that the United States is just a nation of immigrants because people moving here now, there, there is no frontier, right? And there, there's really not a lot of frontier in general, but there's definitely no frontier in the United States, really. And so the people moving here now, immigrants that we would refer to today, are much different than people who were, yes, moving to the United States at those times, but with the expectation that they would need to move further and settle their own land, establish it, defend it, uh, build you know cities, build, build communities in a way that simply does not exist today. These uh, people who are coming in now, many of them, you know, do, doing very interesting things. You got, you know, somebody like, uh, 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 somebody like um, Elon Musk, who's obviously an immigrant, but doing, doing something very productive. But they're not settling anything. He's definitely moving to a civilization that already has many of the protections, many of the benefits, uh, many of the things that you would want as somebody who's just normally uh, shifting from one civilization to the next. Right. And that, this isn't necessarily to, dis, uh, uh, to detract rather from immigration as a category. Um, if you go into American history, a lot of the great industrialists that actually elevated the country out of the... Uh, pre-industrial society that we were into a, an industrial society were themselves uh, European immigrants, typically. Uh, John D. Rockefeller being a major uh, outlier in that regard, but Andrew Carnegie uh, had huge ties to Scotland, as uh, many people might know that uh, uh, people looking at the history of golf in the upper class will uh, see that immediately. Um, so this isn't necessarily to say that immigrants don't do anything productive or that they're less productive than settling or whatnot else. It's to say they're two separate categories that we need to distinguish in order to characterize the history of the U.S. by groups of people moving into one from one location to the next. Absolutely. And the other thing that I wanted to establish before we get too much into the, you know, the history is that the, the founding fathers had very different ideas about kind of what immigration would look like. There were many that wanted a large amount of immigration so that it would swell the the uh, the, the population quickly, and uh, I guess we should uh, I should say settlement uh, rather uh, due to that uh, because of the time. But a large inflow of people from uh, from uh, specifically Europe mostly uh, to just to make sure that they could fill out and they could compete against many of the other uh, great powers that were claiming parts of North America at the time. Uh, there were many that wanted to use that to help create a larger merchant base or a larger uh, uh, agricultural base. Uh, but there were also those the, that were wary about the influence, the origins of where this would come from and how it would disrupt uh, you know, the, the kind of social fabric of the new nation and the dynamics there. And so I don't think there's one unified understanding, perhaps other, uh, uh, other than the fact that most founding fathers seem to think of uh, of the United States as a primarily European venture, a European nation. But but their idea of, of how many and who should come into the United States 
was very mixed bag. Uh, right, and this is uh, this is something to keep in mind as well, is that the dynamics at the time are certainly not what they were today. So you mentioned that uh, you would have some factions in the U.S. that specifically wanted a large number of uh, particularly European immigrants. Uh, Central Europe, Western Europe, Northern Europe were typically the major th spots that they were talking about at the time. And as you mentioned, the idea was that we need to sell the frontier before someone else does. We need to establish our control over it with the, uh, with the American banner waving over the cities there so that we have control over the continent. This is uh, very similar to a, uh, how a lot of the European monarchies at the same time viewed the peopling of their uninhabited regions. This is what the Austrian Empire was doing, the Russian Empire, to keep control of their vast, uh, vast lands. They would send, specifically send specific people to certain areas in order to establish a foothold and make sure that, say, the Ottomans or the Russians or whomever else do not get the strategic advantage. This was very similar thinking that we had over here settling our frontier post-revolution. Um, but as you mentioned, again, just to reiterate, um, every or the vast majority of the founders all viewed this as a very European project, and we'll see later that they reiterated this multiple times into law. Um, so those are the dynamics. It's not like today where they're just bl uh, blathering about uh, immigration being our strength for no apparent reason. So what's the first time that we need to really look at the, the way that immigration is shifted and formed? Because th there's a number of things we could start with the Alien and Sedition Act or all kinds of different things. But well, where do you think that we need to look at if we want, if we want to understand the modern history of immigration? Because we can't we can't go all the way back to, you know, the, the 1600s. So so where should we begin our story? Okay, uh, well, if we if we uh, if we aren't going to go back and explain every minute detail of uh, of British uh, British colonists uh, going to specific places, we just need a, a very a very basic baseline. Um, so, but at the start of our story, we're going to start with uh, uh, post independence America, and we're just going to give a brief overview of what were the colonies like, what were the what were the ethnic groups there, uh, specifically the European nationalities there, um, and how had they changed prior to this, just so that we have a, a very basic overview. Um, and something that we'll see is that at this point in time, New England is still very English. It hasn't had the large influx of Irish, of, of Italians, or any of these other types. It, it was very much uh, true to its name. It was very congregationalist. Um, you had a few outcroppings of, uh, of breakaway factions, Rhode Island being the main uh, state of religious tolerance, being founded by Baptists. Um, but you would have heavy congregationalist presence in New England. So that's its makeup. It's very English, puritanical, with some uh, outcroppings here and there from uh, prior settlings of the frontier. Uh, and this is a, it would also be much more industrial uh, than the other parts of the country. So this is where a lot of the early uh, uh, factories, textile mills, and all that would be if it wasn't going to be in the Mid-Atlantic, which we'll talk about right now, it was going to be in New England. Um, with the Mid-Atlantic, you're going to get uh, Pennsylvania, New York, Maryland, sometimes it's lumped in there, Delaware. Um, these were places that were much more uh, mixed, talking about European peoples. So Pennsylvania was a, was a Quaker colony uh, originally, quite famously. It's uh, uh, the Penn family were, were uh, Welsh Quakers. Um, and for the longest time, up until the, uh, I believe it would be the early 1700s, uh, the Welsh were the largest power holders in Pennsylvania. Um, but at the starting point, uh, through immigration, they were kind of supplanted. Uh, they had uh, Englishmen would, uh, would settle there, Ulster Scots and uh, uh, Irish would settle there, just Scots in general would settle, um, and you would get some Germans as well. Uh, holdovers from the old Swedish colonies would uh, move to Pennsylvania, so they would be supplanted already by immigration by when we're starting. New York would be a similar mix with more Dutch thrown in. Uh, Maryland would be also majority English, save for a large Catholic presence, by its colony's history. Um, and that's, that's just a very basic overview, just so we get a starting point. And then if you move to the south, it's all going to be heavily Anglican, heavily English, with some uh, Germans in North Carolina uh, in particular. Um, and Georgia is going to be very uh, unique, um, because whereas most of these other colonies had a heavy slave presence by the time of a, uh, or not, not as heavy as it would be, but it was definitely present. Um, uh, where we're starting, Georgia was originally founded as a colony for the poor Englishmen. The people that were unemployed uh, were homeless or wherever else, they would have a, a promise in Georgia was the idea. So it was much more, at the start, homogenous than some of these other states didn't have uh, as much of the demographic mix, and it was specifically poor Englishmen, usually Protestant. Um, so that's where we're starting. America is just now independent, and immigration policy needs to be decided almost immediately, because... As we mentioned, there wasn't a unified, uh, um, a unified uh, consensus amongst these founders. What, what are we going to do with the immigrants and naturalizing them into citizens and whatnot? 
Um, so we're going to get two major acts of uh, naturalization and immigration, basically, in the 1790s um, that are specifically going to limit uh, immigration into the United States um, to uh, free whites or free European descendants of good character, of good moral characters, where, what, we, what it would be eventually amended to. Um, and it's also worth noting that up, up until the 1940s, um, this was also interpreted to mean that uh, uh, no Muslims were allowed either, uh, because they were seen not, not necessarily as just a religion, but also a peoples that were not European. Um, so this, this was passed into law, and I believe it would be 1790, and then it was reiterated again in 1795 with the only major change of the act being a uh, change in the uh, period of naturalization. So that, that's what we're starting with. This is our first major policy of the, uh, of the uh, Republic after the Constitution is ratified. We have our government we've been stuck with now uh, for ever since. Uh, this is their policy. Yeah, it jumps from like two years to five or five years to two years back to five years because they're worried about yeah, the, the number of people who might come in and influence elections specifically. Right. Actually. Yes. And, uh, and, and there's also the dynamic that the, the states uh, had more control over immigration. Uh, the, the, the role of the federal government beyond naturalization policy wasn't really clear. And so there, there was more of a, a mixture of, of how that was actually going to be enforced at a state level. Uh, right, and uh, there was a there was also a large uh, or a heavy clerical influence on uh, or a clergy influence rather on on what these policies were because you had previously in this backstory kind of had a shift in the American religious demographics because of uh, because of the Great Awakening. Uh, something that you might not have heard of in school when you're talking about the Great Awakening. Or great Awakening is that a lot of the new lights, a lot of these people going along with this Great Awakening, shaking up the establishments, uh, were themselves recent immigrants. All of the older immigrants from the 17th century tended to be in the old establishment, old light uh, sector. So the old Puritans that you read about in your Scarlet Letter books or whatnot else would have been much more like these old lights just a few generations down the line. Um, these new lights were the, uh, uh, were the Jonathan Edwards types, these uh, more radical, lambasting, fire and brimstone Puritans that were much more focused on uh, individuals, uh, so the story goes, rather than uh, rituals and whatnot else. So immigration... Uh, was very relevant to these clergymen because their churches had been rocked either positively or negatively, depending on the faction, by immigrants. So the old establishment types in New England didn't like immigration as much. The younger, uh, much more uh, uh, Great Awakening types loved it. So basic thing there as well. Uh, something you don't really get to see as much anymore. Churches heavily commenting and swaying their congregations on policies of immigration. Well, I think you do actually see that quite often, uh, but only in one direction. Actually. Right, yeah. <laughs> it, it turns out that if you're pro-immigrant, you're doing God's work. And if you're like, maybe we should be able to protect the country, it's like, oh, you're making an idol of politics. That's right, exactly. Amazing how that how that works. Um, so I, I think as so often is the case, the Civil War is going to be a, a big dividing line here. So let's set the stage before we get there. What is what are any are there any immigration changes that we need to know about any any demographic shifts uh, it, you know people coming into the country in large ways that we should know pre civil war what's that dynamic look like right and uh, just right before we get there I should just quickly also iterate uh, that that um the Europeans only policy that we just talked about from the founders would again be reiterated in 1802 and another naturalization law so right. <laughs> you, you get it three times there. You can't really misconstrue it. It just is what it is. You can make of it what you will. <clears throat> and then right before the Civil War, um, so we'll say early 1800s to about 1840 or so, we get something, uh, something that's going to be distinct uh, to what comes after. Um, the majority of the immigrants at this point in time uh, are going to still be from the British Isles and then minor bits from Ireland, the continent of Europe, and Scandinavia in particular. Uh, that's going to be the majority of our most early immigration waves are just more people coming to the New Republic. Um, and those uh, small groups from the continent are actually going to be very influential uh, relative to their uh, population size compared to some of their later uh, immigrants. Uh, so these are where your more conservative non-Anglo churches come from. So uh, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, uh, nominally conservative, uh, comes out of these groups in this uh, 1800 to 1840 period before these major waves that we're going to talk about come to the continent. A lot of the uh, more Scandinavian-inspired pietist churches that tend to be much more conservative, once again, at least nominally, will come during these small groups. So 
that, that's, that's one reason to mention this is because it affects the religious makeup of the continent. Um, but also, it's still one of the only few points where Englishmen, Scots, Ulster Scots are going to be the main uh, immigrant waves. Um, but after the 18, during the 1840s and after is where you're going to get something much different. Um, it's going to be where the Irish and the Germans in particular start to massively supplant any of the other uh, immigration groups coming to, this, uh, coming to the country. Um, and not just Germans as well, uh, and Germans and Irish, but also Central Europeans. So um, I, I believe the first uh, Czechs in Texas technically uh, came in the 1830s or so, uh, but the vast majority of the ones that came after them were during this time period post-1840. So if you know the, that weird group in Texas, that's where they come from. If you want to know why the vast majority of the American Midwest is German, this is that wave in particular. Uh, is post-1840 particularly, 1848 gets a bad rap because the story goes that a lot of uh, atheistic revolutionaries from the European continent were coming over here and corrupting the United States. Um, I personally think that's a bit overblown, but there's no denying that you did get some uh, German uh, peoples who were sympathetic to the revolutions would settle in, say, Texas or these other frontier areas, and they tended to be much more... Uh, uh, they, they would support the Whig Party and then later the Republicans, so yeah, much more abolitionist-minded. Um, this is also where you get a lot of, uh, a lot of sort of uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant uh, bristling against the Germans. Uh, this is where Germans are going to be characterized as these brash, loud drunkards playing these weird instruments at the town square, thinking that they're still in Germany and not over here in the enlightened uh, Anglo, uh, Anglosphere America. Um, so there's going to be that clash, and it's going to continue, really, until the Progressive Era, but that's, that's just something to note in the background. Uh, but I, I think that's our main groups leading up to the Civil War. Now, just, a, just a quick aside, because you mentioned it a number of times, and I think a lot of people, will, modern people today would have a harder time understanding this, but it was very obvious at the time. Why were churches and their migration so critical in the immigration process? Because you've, you've mentioned the different religious makeup, and that's important, but of course, those churches are community centers that allow for assimilation, allow communities, you know, to, to bind together for young men who move in to, you know, find a wife and find a job, those kind of things. Can you talk a little bit about the role that that plays? Uh, right. So uh, very, this is a, especially in immigration patterns or settling patterns. This is very similar to what you see in the early colonies. Uh, if you get a group of people that are uh, diehards in their faith, they're probably going to go together. So what you're going to see are these uh, large groups of uh, people of one specific faith settling on the frontier. And during the Second Great Awakening in particular, you're going to get so much of these that you'll get what are called circuit riders, uh, pastors that are pastored over like three parishes or whatnot, and they just ride across week by week to each different parish. Uh, so uh, this is uh, th that's, that's one main uh, pattern there, um, and that circuit riding uh, heritage is also how you're going to get a lot of the uh, Southern Baptist heritage comes from these uh, groups out on the frontier. Um, but uh, just as you mentioned, these, uh, these churches are going to be major hubs of settlement uh, on the frontier or major hubs for immigrants arriving in already established towns. So mm -hmm. um, something that we'll see in the 1840s for the first time, we're going to get a large wave of Catholics coming from Ireland, coming from South Germany, uh, parts of Switzerland, uh, Austria, uh, the holdouts in northern Germany, they're going to come over here. Um, and they're mainly going to, their churches in particular, are mainly going to encourage them to join the Democratic Party just because it was uh, much more Catholic-friendly at the point at this point in time. So uh, churches will use these immigration patterns, especially in the uh, port cities, New York City being a main one, uh, and they're going to use it to influence local politics and national politics. Uh, so uh, if there's something in there that, uh, uh, that I missed that you think is worth, uh, worth saying, then oh. point it out. No, that was, that was great. Uh, so uh, we talked about the pre-Civil War and, and kind of the way that immigration is shaping the nation. Obviously, you know, if people have seen Gangs of New York, you know, that's 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 a movie. A lot of people will be like, ah, I know something about this period because, I you know, I've, I've seen some of this and it's, it's a great movie to be sure. Um, but but what role did immigration play during that war? Obviously, there's a lot of other factors involved, but there, I think it's, it's a key moment in people understanding kind of the, the role that a, a large uh, wave of can, immigrants can play, particularly when a nation is fighting itself. Uh, right. And uh, sorry, I just remembered this and I should have mentioned it being as we were just talking about the religious stuff, but uh, that those waves of Catholics are really going to galvanize some of the older Protestant uh, groups in the country. So this is where you'll get the uh, 
uh, the know-nothings in particular, um, just because, once again, these Protestants took their faith very seriously. Um, and this is still at the time where the, uh, uh, the Reformation, the resulting wars of religion were still, it, it, people remembered them. They remembered stories that were passed down from their grandfather, whose grandfather told them, and all this other stuff. So, An invasion uh, of papists. Right, exactly, yeah. So the, these papist hordes coming across the ocean are actually a very serious threat to them. And then conversely to the papists, you know, Maryland was once theirs, at least nominally, uh, for religious freedom. So, you know, you, you get these uh, uh, play-by-plays, and certainly some might have a stronger claim to legitimacy. But during the Civil War, um, you're going to see two very strange things take place. Uh, one is you're going to see the North particularly rely on immigration for their army, uh, which seems very Roman Empire-esque. A lot of people might know you're not supposed to do that unless you have something very nice to offer them and uh, they aren't going to take you over afterwards. The North, I think, uh, wasn't necessarily cooed by a roving army of, uh, of immigrants, so I think they handled that pretty well, um, at least from their perspective. Uh, the other thing is that these immigrants are going to resist joining the northern armies as well. So you get this uh, goes of both ways. Um, uh, it turns out that a bunch of people fleeing from Ireland and all the different wars of Europe and whatnot don't actually want to go fight another war, especially as uh, technology becomes more modern. So on the one hand, um, the South, who makes much less use of uh, recent immigrants in their army, um, are going to start characterizing the North rather accurately of uh, roaming bands of mercenaries and hordes of, uh, hordes of foreigners, like uh, uh, the famous Confederate song Southern Soldier is going to call the Northern Army's uh, mercenary hordes. This was a common sentiment because the South was primarily um, British in its, uh, in its heritage. English, Ulster Scots, Irish at this point in time had kind of settled there, and just uh, normal Scots. Um, these waves of, like, Germans who... Some of them still spoke these weird continental languages uh, that certainly no one over in the South had heard for generations. Uh, and these, uh, these Irishmen coming from these other parts of Ireland, um, these are going to be very uh, grating. It would be like if right now, um, if uh, just hypothetically, a state tried to secede and we just decide to import uh, a, a large variety of people south of the border to go fight them. Uh, that, that would obviously... Theoretically. It, right, yeah. Not that that could be happening now. <laughs> in, a, in a weird alternate, you know, timeline. That, yeah. Right, yeah. It, it wouldn't play well, uh, might be a good way to put it, for anyone, really. Um, because Northerners are going to start wondering if this really is for good and, why, and whatnot else. Why are our people not joining it? Why can't they make up for the shortage of men without going to these immigrant populations? So, uh, it doesn't play well for anyone. It certainly discredits the North uh, on all sides, basically, except for the most hardcore of abolitionists. Um, and then the other thing that we mentioned, uh, the immigrants don't like getting conscripted to fight these people that they don't even know yet. This is a completely new political system. Uh, certainly, if you're coming from, say, Ireland or Germany, you haven't had to deal with abolitionism. Uh, you've barely had to deal with serfdom. So what gives? They're being conscripted now. So you're going to have several major draft riots. Uh, the New York City draft riots in particular might come to mind. These were... Uh, um, a large, uh, a large portion of these uh, rioters are going to be Irish, just because there's, uh, you know, they certainly didn't have this tradition of being conscripted to fight for abolition, uh, basically half a continent away uh, if we're going by European distance. So uh, that that's the main dynamics in the Civil War, and those previous waves that we were mentioning, German, uh, Germans and Irish, are going to still continue. So that's that's not stopped just yet. It's going to decline slightly as the war is going on. But it's not going to stop. So, so um, the, oh, go on. I was just going to say, so the other big effect of the Civil War, obviously, is going to be the 14th Amendment. Yes. And what has now been understood as birthright citizenship. Now, obviously, the 14th Amendment was originally created to solve the problem of whether slave, former slaves were citizens or not. And so the, the clarification was, well, if you were born in the United States... Even if you were not free at that time, you are now you are a citizen because you were born there. Obviously, that dynamic has changed. That 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 fix at that time has changed the immigration dynamic since in a very drastic way. Uh, right, exactly. Um, certainly, uh, these radical Republicans who I, I think we've talked about on the show uh, that pushed through these uh, these amendments, uh, especially after Reconstruction, um, they aren't they aren't ever going to predict that birthright citizenship would be used as a way to ensure that a large Mexican or South American contingent or Central American contingent of the population 
is going to establish itself here just because they technically had a child inside the border and therefore that child is now now has birthright citizenship. Obviously not the plan, but like most things with the radical Republicans, uh, they didn't predict these things and it's very much been used in the, uh, in the left's favor. Um, so it doesn't really matter what their intentions were, that's how it's been used and that's what the law reads, which you know, maybe you should have opposed it while you still could have, but uh, some people did and they were forced to not do that at gunpoint. So. Right. Yeah, and and unfortunately, like you said, in, in so many of these situations, the, the emergency solution is not well well thought out. Right. And and we, we have to pay for that for a very long time. And I think a lot of people now would, would recognize that this is kind of a disastrous plan long term. And, you know, but at this point, it's been around so long that people have a hard time of con, uh, conceptualizing how you would even change that. An amendment to the 14th Amendment, most people would have a hard time <laughs> grasping yeah. that. Or, or perhaps uh, we, we could even dream big and hope for an amendment abolishing the 14th Amendment, but uh, that's neither here nor there. Yeah, well, <laughs> um, that's a whole nother episode. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps one that needs to happen, but a whole nother episode. All right, so. Um, there's one more thing, though. Yes, um, okay. this, this is the first time outside of going to the frontier that we're going to see massive amounts of internal migration. So Civil War's done. Uh, suddenly there's a lot of opportunities, especially financially for Northerners, to go to this uh, newly devastated south and just do business there. Going, and land is cheap and whatnot, so it's a good way to get land. There's, I know I've talked about this on the show before. Those are going to be the carpetbaggers. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's one group of internal migrants. They're typically European-descended, um, and that's, that's just going to be the vast majority of, uh, of that group. The other one is going to be uh, new, newly, free, newly freed blacks in the south going to the north. Um, not as much as they will later in history, um, but this certainly does happen for the first time. So all of these Midwestern and uh, uh, Northern towns are suddenly going to see their first black person, uh, perhaps for the first time in a few generations. Yeah, um, and that's definitely so, going to yeah, that's and that definitely changes the uh, the the dynamic in a lot of areas that you know they they had not expected. Um, right. But okay, so post Civil War, leading up to uh, you know uh, kind of the 1900s what you said obviously the irish and german immigration continues but is there any other key groups or any other key changes we need to know during that time uh leading up to the civil war you say no post civil war oh post civil war okay because obviously we get things like the homestead act and there, yeah. there's the interest in in expanding the frontier even more rapidly again what is the approach after that Okay, yeah, so uh, the Irish and Germans are still going to be significant. The, the British are basically a, a minority group of immigrants at this point. The, the, if anyone was going to come over from the British Isles, they did it a few generations ago now, um, or a couple of generations, I should say. Um, but what we're going to see after the Civil War is uh, economic expansion, uh, some of it state-directed, so this is going to be your railroads, and some of it just uh, organic, so this is going to be more of like your steel mills and, and whatnot else. Um, both groups, uh, particularly the railroads, though this is the, what they're most renowned for, are going to start looking for new groups of temporary laborers. Um, and this is in the British style, so they, they are very much temporary. They're just taking a job, and then once it's done, they get shipped back to wherever they're from on the company dime. Uh, you, can, you very much can legally pay them less. They can take more damage. You know, they're, they're willing to risk life and limb handling nitroglycerin and, and mountainside uh, uh, mines and whatnot else to, to get through to the other side, uh, whereas your your average uh, American at this point probably does not want to just handle open nitroglycerin and blow off their arm. Um, so what's going to happen? Explosives that Americans won't handle. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, maybe not in the way that the companies wanted them to handle, but um, at this point in time, this is, or at least this is what the companies would say. Um, and this is where the railroad uh, magnates are going to start uh, importing temporary Chinese laborers. Um, and this is very unpopular um, because especially as you're getting more immigrant waves from Europe and not much is in this early period, we're not going to see too terribly much change. It's going to come just afterwards, but you are still getting positive immigration. People are going to want some sort of employment. Seeing these railroad magnates off on the other side of the country uh, having these perfectly good jobs and uh, potential settlement opportunities and whatever else, uh, or at least the jobs mainly being taken up by temporary laborers from Asia, is not popular, especially with the growing union movement. Um, so what we're going to see uh, between the 1870s to, say, 1920 is going to be the next major episode we'll talk about later, 
um, temporary Chinese laborers are going to be banned, um, in particular. They were never becoming citizens. Uh, they were still banned under the aforementioned acts that we talked about probably 20 minutes ago now. Um, but they, they were taking up jobs, uh, so the story goes, and therefore banned. And I believe this would be under the uh, uh, Arthur administration, I think, would have been this, so 1880s, give or take. Um, so this is one main group. It's sort of like an anomaly. Uh, main, first main group of Asians brought over to the continent, and then also they were then shipped back quite promptly. Um, so this is a, a, perhaps one of our main successful examples of expatriation. You know, these workers weren't here and then just decided to stay here and they were naturalized after an amnesty. They were sent back. Uh, that's, that's why Oregon and Washington don't have this ancient Chinese population there. And that's, again, probably because the, the idea of America as a European project was still very strong. There, there, there was not this idea that you would just move people in and as soon as they worked, they suddenly had the right to become a citizen. That, that was still not a... Yeah, m m most certainly. I mean, and these Chinese aren't Christians either. You have to keep that in mind as well. So along with the racial element, like at least with the Protestants, the Catholics may be this uh, this weird parody of what Christianity is supposed to be, um, but at least they aren't these demon-worshipping pagans as they would characterize the Chinese. That, that's, that's how they would just typically characterize them, this sort of weird uh, animist-style religion or maybe this uh, weird humanistic philosophy in the term of Confucianism or whatever. Uh, did not play well with anyone. And this is at a point in time where both left and right, uh, either nominally or fervently, made an appeal to Christianity. So having these uh, pagans uh, brought over from China, from Asia, this non-European continent, played well with no people, really, except for, the, uh, except for the railroad corporations. And the only reason they could do this without uh, extreme backlash was because they were being bankrolled by the federal government. So uh, I, guess, uh, I guess that's an unintended consequence. Um, but after this, oh, sorry, what were you going to say? No, no, no. That's okay, all right. Um, after this, like, brief episode, uh, we're going to see a major shift in immigration patterns that, uh, by groups that really had not come over here yet. Um, these are going to be Eastern and Southern Europeans. So this is getting to the end of the 1800s and towards the 1900s. Uh, instead of Germans, Irish, Brits, uh, Scandinavians, and whatever else, we're going to start getting uh, Italians. We're going to start getting Greeks. Uh, Balkan, uh, uh, Balkans, uh, we're going to start seeing Poles, Russians, Jews in heavy numbers coming from Eastern Europe, Ashkenazi Jews in particular. The South at this point had had a large, uh, or not, a sizable Sephardi population. Um, and in fact, if you look at the Confederate government, there's going to be a lot of uh, uh, Sephardic representatives there. Uh, we had not really had Ashkenazi Jews up until this point. Uh, they're going to be coming along with the Italians, with the Russians, with the Poles, uh, Ukrainians and whomever else, and they are primarily going to be settling in the cities. In fact, it is a rarity for this new wave of people to go to the frontier at all. Uh, this is why if you look at a ethnic breakdown of New England right now, it's majority Italian, because that's where they settled was this old, uh, this old Anglo countryside. They did not head to Wyoming or Oklahoma or Texas or the Texan panhandle to go settle new lands, primarily. So um, this is also going to give rise to people living in basically shanty towns uh, is going to become a main cause for progressive reformers later. The cities were not clean, they were slums. And it had partly been due to this giant influx of uh, peoples that were uh, almost universally seen to be backwards. Uh, this is another thing to, to uh, note down. Uh, it didn't matter which uh, immigrant group you were from uh, prior to this, just so long as you were. Uh, the Italians, the Poles, and whomever else coming in were extremely foreign. Um, they were, they were once again another Roman Catholic uh, Catholic group. So you've lost the Protestants, um, but they're also Slavic, or they're Latin. We haven't really had either of those groups in large numbers to this point. So this is a completely new uh, language group coming in. This is a completely new uh, uh, hereditary group coming in. Uh, so no one really saw these people as a as natural uh, natural Americans, if you will. Uh, certainly not. If you if you were to ask someone which groups of Europe are, would be the best Americans, it certainly wouldn't be Italy or Poland or Russia or uh, the the Moscow Jews or whomever else. So, how much uh, of the of this also played into the industrial revolution, the industrialization right. of these areas and the workforce there? All right. So this is a uh, this is where you get into the minutia of how do you define industrialization? Because before these waves of people, you've had had rapid industrialization. This is. 
this is past the point where Carnegie was on the rise. He was uh, uh, basically sold out at this point to J.P. Morgan. Mm -hmm. uh, Rockefeller had already established his empire and was competing with, uh, with oil companies from the old world. Um, so we had had this, uh, I think this would technically, what I just described, be the second industrial revolution. We've had steam power already, and now we were doing uh, steel manufacturing and oil drilling and whatnot else. Um, and a, a lot of the inventors are going to come from these older groups. Edison and Ford uh, are certainly not uh, Latin or Slavic in their, in their heritage. Um, so th this, is, this is one way you can, you can frame it, is that they, they weren't driving it necessarily, but they were the labor force. This is something that was almost indisputable. A lot of these people, um, as was uh, romanticized in uh, The Jungle, uh, the book that every mainstream history teacher likes to point to when talking about the progressive era, um, these people were the labor force. Um, they were also characterized as, uh, because of their strong ties to labor, as socialists. Um, there was a, a heavy fear, especially among old Union generals at this point in time, uh, that, these, uh, that these Slavs and uh, Latins uh, were going to be red banner-waving anarchists, uh, people that were going to cause violence, people that were just completely incompatible with, uh, with the American way of life up until this point. Um, and in fact, uh, one of these, one such uh, of these people are going to shoot President McKinley quite famously. Uh, I believe that would be a Serbian anarchist, if I'm not mistaken. I think it's a Balkan anarchist. I, of some I, think, sort. I think his parents were, but he was born in the United States, right. if, I, if, I, if I remember correctly. So it's so he's one generation removed from, but certainly is it certainly has the the politics of his former uh, you know, former homeland. Right. Exactly. So. Uh, in this sense, I guess that they called it. I mean, you can't say their fears are unfounded if the supposedly the most important office in the country, the the holder of it, was just shot by one of these uh, one of these people coming from, or at least descended from these waves. So, this is a I, I guess a merited fear, if you will. Um, but uh, you're going to get a lot a lot of a uh, union movement in particular of Irish, Germans, and Wasps for the whatever Wasps actually joined unions are are going to push back against this because. Italians, uh, Poles, Russians, and whomever else were not in these unions already. Uh, it's against the union's interest to expand the labor force. It's very basic, uh, very basic economics as it relates to unions there. Um, so uh, that's that's one uh, way that this plays out. And then I don't want to say this is a hard fact necessarily for all of them, um, but you are even going to get inter-Catholic uh, uh, conflicts as well in the cities. Um, so, like, German Catholics and Irish Catholics that established themselves in these large port cities, suddenly you're getting this large waves of other fellow Catholics that are not German or Irish or Swiss or Austrian or whatever else. Uh, it's, it, it's going to be a, a big issue. This is why if you go to these large cities, you're going to see that there's basically self-segregation. This, this was the Polish parish. This was the Irish parish or whatever else. And part of that's practical because not everyone was just multilingual. Uh, it was very impractical. To, for the average person to learn a different language. So you're, you're going to get that competition as well, almost uh, uh, if you want to simplify it uh, as if uh, ethnicity supersedes religious unity here, uh, at least among the Roman Catholics. So um, just to, to make sure... Oh, and this is uh, something else as well. Uh, the progressives, for all their rhetoric about trying to keep America from being influenced and irreversibly shifted by these waves of immigration... Uh, they did not actually, the first wave of progressives, uh, Roosevelt, Taft, and Wilson, really didn't clamp down on the immigration. It would be their successors, the return to normalcy in the 20s, that would actually accomplish this. So Italian immigration, for instance, would reach its height under the progressive era. Um, and it was primarily these uh, uh, Italian and Slavic immigrants that would be the uh, help of these social reformer causes in, in the cities. Uh, so if you learn about progressive era, you hear about all these different halfway houses and other initiatives that were supposed to lift these immigrants out of poverty. Um, these new waves of immigrants were the main recipients. Um, and once again, due to their number and due to the uh, spurious political leanings of some of their compatriots, this is going to cause the first Red Scare, especially um, as the Russian Civil War starts. Because suddenly you've had all of these Slavs, all of these Southern uh, Europeans coming to the country, and it looks like their homelands are turning very favorably towards some sort of socialistic system uh, the Red Scare is the only natural phenomenon. This is the one that people don't know about necessarily. It's happening uh, whenever uh, uh, the progressive administrations actually start to conduct raids on what they perceive to be uh, communist or socialist meeting places. So that's uh, 
I think I covered everything there. Absolutely. So the, the melting pot is having some difficulty, right? Not, 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 okay. quite, not quite working out as, as some people might have envisioned. So you mentioned 1920s, we're going to see a shift. What is the reaction here? What, how, do they, how do they implement this shift? Right. Uh, and just as a side note for anyone in the audience, the term melting pot is actually a very foreign word to the United States. You can look up the play that it comes from that popularized the phrase. Um, it was not an American that it wrote it. It was a, it was a British Jew. So um, long lineage of uh, famous British Jews uh, actually influencing Anglo politics. Disraeli comes to mind, for instance, as a major conservative leader. Uh, this is another instance of that. So uh, it's a very foreign thing. And uh, depending on what uh, what motivations you think that foreign groups have for the United States, uh, I guess you can make the judgment as to whether the melting pot is working or not. Um, but for the 1920s, this is where you get a reaction against basically the entire progressive movement and uh, typical to most uh, major reactions. Um, you get, um, they accept part of the, uh, part of the uh, preceding philosophy. So Harding, Coolidge, and Hoover were not pre-progressive right-wingers and necessarily, but they certainly were right-wingers that were not like the progressives. Um, so uh, along with all their other reforms that are going to take place, Harding and Coolidge in particular are going to clamp down immigration uh, as, as harsh as it's ever been in the United States history uh, before or since. Uh, they're going to introduce what's called the quota systems. Uh, Harding is going to start in either 1920 or 1921. I, I forget the specific year. I think it's 21. Uh, he's going to sign a bill into law, and then Coolidge is going to continue it in 1924. Um, both of these uh, are basically the same. It's just that the, the earlier bill signed by Harding is going to have a... Uh, uh, they're going to look at the 1910 census, and they're going to look at all these different European ethnic groups of immigrants. Um, and what they're going to do is they're going to determine um, how, many, um, how many arrivals did we have at this point in 1910. And the new law for the quota system is going to say that uh, new, uh, new arrivals for that specific uh, racial and nationality group are going to be limited to 3% of that number. So this is, uh, if you look at a uh, total number of immigrants chart for the United States over time, this is the first time that we actually experience a decline caused by policy and not by warfare, um, if I remember correctly. So uh, this is specifically to uh, restrict Italian immigration, Slavic immigration, Jewish immigration from Russia, um, and some of these other groups from around the European area, the Mediterranean, Black Seas, um, that were not wanted, quite frankly, by by most of these other established groups. By 1924, that number is going to be taken from 3% of that group to 2%. So it's going to be even less than, than earlier. Uh, and also during the 1924 Act, if I remember correctly, all immigration from Asia is banned, just blanket. Uh, so uh, this is, uh, that might seem to come out of nowhere, being as we haven't talked about Asian immigration really since the Chinese temporary laborers. Uh, but if you look at world history, uh, China had just entered its civil war period, and the reasoning went, uh, this is what might be called a yellow scare, uh, the reasoning went that China in its civil war is going to have a large amount of people wanting to flee the civil war. Where are they going to go to? Probably the United States if they can. Um, so this was a measure uh, to make sure by basically all groups involved uh, that California, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, and all these other places by the Pacific uh, did not experience a large influx of Asian populations. Um, so this was a this is a probably the most radical uh, immigration policies that we will see yet, and certainly have seen since. Um, and also during this point in time as well, this is where you get more internal migration. This is where it starts to come back to the forefront. Mm -hmm. uh, this is where you get the largest amount of blacks coming from the south to the north, um, and that's going to cause a uh, uh, strife, and it's going to cause new settlements to be made. Uh, there's a whole separate analysis of that to be had um, elsewhere. Um, and, oh, this is also where our first border control agency gets established. Yeah. So um, the border control was not needed up until this point. It was uh, just kind of I, I, locally or devolved uh, enforcement in its, uh, in its mechanism. Uh, but now it was, uh, it was certainly an agency that was uh, the concern of all levels of government. Um, so this is the reforms brought about in the 20s up until about the 40s or so is when we're going to see this, uh, uh, see this change. Um, yeah. So, so obviously we don't we don't have these controls. That something has shifted. So, 
what was it that, <laughs> what, what was it that removed these controls why aren't they still in place today right so uh as you if you've been listening right now this sounds like fantasy land because we've established that muslims can't emigrate they can't become citizens um we've only just barely established that blacks in the south could be citizens um certainly no new africans could emigrate no asians can emigrate and uh, all these Eastern European populations are limited to quotas of, uh, of a tiny amount. Um, and it should be worth noting as well, and I forgot to mention this again, uh, that second act that we discussed for the quota systems uh, looked at the 1890 census. So it's even less, uh, even less Southern uh, Europeans and Slavs than, than previous. So uh, on both of those counts, uh, the percent admitted um, and, the, uh, and the census used, uh, we're basically not getting any of these groups, but if you look at immigration in the modern day, um, you're certainly uh, seeing probably, if you are getting European immigration, it's probably coming from the East now, just given the look at uh, warfare and refugee statuses and whatnot. Um, you do see Muslim groups getting citizenship and running for office and whatnot. Uh, so yes, yeah, something has changed quite drastically. Um, and what we're going to see is a couple of things. Uh, just to note about the Muslim thing, it's going to be overruled in 1944. Uh, near the end of FDR's administration after he's revolutionized the courts and whatnot else. Uh, I believe it's a Saudi, uh, Saudi Muslim man becomes the first Muslim citizen, I think would be the, uh, I think was that uh, court case. I forget the name. Um, but after FDR's administration, the New Deal and whatnot else, um, the seeds are planted for the civil rights movement, uh, which is uh, probably a tired refrain for some people at this point if you keep watching our own show or mine or anyone else's uh, surrounding us and our friends. The civil rights movement seems to be behind a lot of uh, modern problems, and this is no different for immigration. Um, so what you're going to start seeing in the 1950s is that race-based uh, quotas are discriminatory and thus should be repealed and struck down. Uh, this goes right along with uh, the desegregation of the schools and whatnot else right, at the, uh, uh, right when the ball gets moving for the civil rights uh, movement. Now, I'd like to stop for just a second there uh, because I think it's important for people to note the Civil Rights Act is supposed to correct problems of uh, of kind of racial um, tensions and, and inequalities in law in people who are already in the United States. That's that's its original purpose. That's the stated purpose. That's the way it's sold to people is there is a and I think rightly to state there is an injustice, of course, that is happening to many black citizens and that needs to change that then they need to be equal before the law and so that is the stated purpose of the civil rights act but almost immediately we see that its implications don't actually solve that problem they're they're actually pointed at something that's entirely different and so the even though the stated goal and the way it was sold was to sp uh, solve a specific problem between mainly two groups inside the united states Instead, the logic was immediately extended to alter the way that the United States did business with pretty much anyone else across the world. Not just immediate, because that implies this is sequential as if this was a natural outcropping. It happened at the same time. The same fervors and sentiments were used in the 1950s. While this is happening, kind of before even the most major civil rights acts, um, to, to basically just open up the borders, as long as the, as long as the restrictions weren't race-based. Now... National origin uh, discrimination existed up until 1965 with the Hart-Celler Act. Um, so uh, we, we have this sort of, uh, uh, whenever, uh, whenever the law is passed in the civil rights fervor to ban race-based discrimination in immigration, you get a sort of retreating by the, uh, the uh, anti-civil rights faction to saying, well, then we'll just ban by national origin because we can see that such and such country has had this amount of subversive activity for communism or whatever else. We don't want that here, so we're just going to ban immigration based off of ex-census from this country, basically doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, so um, in 1965, uh, you're going to get the Hart-Celler Act. Uh, Philip Hart, who was uh, uh, erroneously nicknamed the conscience of the Senate, if I remember correctly, and Emanuel Seller, who was a, uh, uh, if I remember correctly, I think he was a Jewish, born of a German Jewish parents from uh, one of these earlier immigration waves, uh, sponsors this bill. Um, so you can see how immigration is going to influence your country's political trajectory over time. It doesn't have to be within this generation. It could be a few down the line. Um, this act is going to open up everywhere except the Western Hemisphere. Um, the countries south of the border are restricted to, I think, a couple hundred thousand yearly. Or no, it might have been oh, just slightly over a hundred thousand yearly. So 
Now suddenly, if you want to come in from Asia, any part of Europe, Africa, uh, Antarctica, for whatever reason, if you were there, um, you can come right in. Uh, there's not going to be a quota put in on the amount of people we can accept. The Western Hemisphere, however, has a, uh, has a ban, in, and this is largely due to um, union movements within the Democratic Party at the time. Uh, what you might call labor Democrats were kind of on the ascendancy of the Johnson administration uh, after Truman, Kennedy, and uh, FDR. Uh, the Dixiecrats really had not had any sort of real power in a long time, and they were the, the conservative faction. Um, the, and even they somewhat tacitly supported unions at times, if not outright. Um, this uh, Western Hemisphere provision in the Hart-Seller Act was to make sure that you wouldn't just have all of the people south of the border come in and compete with uh, good American union workers for jobs. That was the rationale behind it. Um, and then, as we know right now, judging by the recent uh, events in the news, something's changed because right. we are certainly letting in a lot more than a little 100 to 200,000 people south of the border. So what's happened then? Uh, well, under the Reagan administration, if you could believe this, um, <laughs> under the Reagan administration, uh, that, that part of the act was repealed. I think there was like a 1986 Immigration Act that was passed that uh, took off the... Uh, or nominally uh, took away the quota on the southern border and just replaced it with normal controls. Um, and it, there were some conservative concessions to really crack down on the immigration altogether. Of course, that was never really followed. Um, and then Reagan, once again, is uh, famous for giving amnesties out uh, every single time that someone asked him to. Um, this is also what's going to follow. So um, that, that's just going to be the main, uh, the ethnic history, if you will. Um, and you can, you can certainly see how, uh, as time has gone on, uh, you get this sort of, uh, a leftist would call it people trying to pull up the ladder behind them. Someone sensible might say that you just don't want your country to be filled with people from like completely different language, language and religious families, whatnot else that would make things difficult. Um, you see that older generations of immigrants and especially the oldest settlers have probably gotten the worst deal out of all of this don't want their country to be uh, subsumed by the newer groups. That's, that's always the case, and I, I think it's a rather merited fear. You know, if I uh, come from a family that built this part of Oklahoma or something, I wouldn't want this part of Oklahoma to be settled by uh, a large wave of Bosnians or Serbians or whatever. Yeah, and the you know the joke in in many of the states that are uh, at the border is you know the the last wave of uh, Hispanic immigrants is trying to keep out the newest wave of Hispanic immigrants, and there's nothing new about that dynamic. That's that's been the case for a long time. There's nobody who understands the value of the United States and its difference between the place that many people immigrated from than the people who got here and you know re realized that, that that this is a much better place for for them to live and they want to keep it that way. So th there's nothing new there. So yeah, that that's a great sweep. I think that brings us up to pretty much our modern history of immigration. Obviously now we're in an even more radical place because now we're kind of debating whether you can even have any ever control on a border ever forget where people come from or, or, who, you know, what you want the, you know, the, the dynamic in your country to be, whether people have the right uh, to to you know decide who's going to live next to their country. Now we're at the point of like, are uh, our, our borders even legal? You you can't have you can't have any any fences or barbed wire because that's a human's right human rights uh, violation. So we're at the point now where obviously federal federal policy is just never going to get fixed, and that's why Greg Abbott had to take action. It's why more Republican governors need to take action because I don't think we're ever going to see a, a national or le level solution to this until pressure is put on. The, the legislature by action of these individual governors. So I really appreciate you taking us uh, through this history because I think it's really critical for people to get a real understanding of what immigration was like in the United States before they can understand how we kind of arrived here. Uh, but that's the, oh, sorry, go ahead, Ron. I, I, I was just going to say, uh, unless they can somehow get a national coalition to actually enforce border patrols, it literally has to be the states or no one else. Um, and if you want to talk about, uh, well, why do all these older uh, waves of immigration seem more American? You can make many arguments for it, but one of it is uh, what happened to assimilation, this policy of rigid assimilation that we once had. I mean, the Midwest and the Great Plains no longer speaks German. Uh, that used to be the second largest language in America up until the Progressive Era. So they got assimilated somehow, and it was by, it was by force, basically. Uh, social pressure, which is a form of coercion or uh, government edicts saying that you can't use such and such language on these telegraph wires or telephones or whatnot else. Um, by, by the civil rights era, that's deemed discriminatory and it's gone. 
So this is a, that might be part of it. Uh, certainly, if you want to do with what the founders say and uh, claim that only certain nationalities or peoples or races can actually be American, uh, then go ahead. But um, there, there is something to be said of this, uh, of this idea, especially if you're an Anglo. Uh, the dissimilation probably was the best option if you are going to have it at all. All right, we're going to go ahead and pivot to the questions of the people. But before we do, Ryan, anything coming up, something people should check out, your work, what's going on? Uh, I'm back on YouTube pretty regularly. You can find my channel. Uh, it's just my name, Ryan Turnipseed. Uh, there is a weekly show on Saturday mornings pretty early, especially if you're in a, especially if you're a, the further west you go. Um, it's called Turnips Digest, and it's a series of economic or political uh, topics that where I and a guest are just cover it, usually a primary source is involved. Uh, for the past few weeks, and certainly this next week, uh, we have been covering the neoconservatives and what they have wrote specifically. So we are not just saying the neocons are bad and here's why we think so. We are saying, here's what the neocons say. Uh, look at how absolutely buffoonish it sounds. Like we just uh, last Saturday went over a uh, Irving Crystal article in the Wall Street Journal where he is uh, saying that um, if you get pregnant and decide to keep the child, that's your fault. You don't deserve welfare. But the elderly should have unlimited benefits from Social Security. He wrote this at the time he was 72. So <laughs> that's that's some real boomer energy right there. <laughs> well, I, I don't even think he's a boomer. I think he was the he, he personifies it, though, if you will. Yeah, exactly. uh, certainly he, he doesn't qualify as one, but his that, that energy is carried through. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, go, go find me over there and then my Twitter account at Turnip Merchant. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, there's always something to be uh, something to be talking about uh, over there. So, yeah, Ryan is a man of, of uh, meticulous receipts. And so that, that's why he is always so valuable. He stores, again, that power in his hair. Uh, so do not ask him to cut it because we must retain it for the good of America. All right. So. Charles Perkins uh, says, if you're in the second Trump administration, what is your day one plan for immigration? Do you have the legal infrastructure or, or, or uh, uh, sorry, do we have the legal infrastructure or will to do it? Uh, does Trump make a deal? Uh, I'll go ahead and uh, get your answer first, Ryan. What do you think? Uh, I, I guess these are two pretty different questions, but do you think we have what we need now to change the border policy? And do you think Trump has the will to do it? Uh, do we do we have what we need? Uh, technically, no. Like, I, I don't think that if we just got in tomorrow that there would some, <clears throat> we'd suddenly have the manpower and resources right there for us to go and uh, enacting what we need. Uh, but I, I do think, however, uh, that we do have uh, we do have the ability to if we do have the will to actually turn things around. Uh, you, you have, uh, there's been a lot of talk now of repatriation, not just uh, closing immigration, but actually going back and retroactively enforcing laws that have been broken, kind of like you would with any other law. You know, if I broke a law today that was major enough and it went on for a while, five years later I get caught so long as the statute of limitations hasn't passed, you'd expect me to be tried for it. Basic, basic stuff, or if they suspect I've been, broken a law, I guess you would say. Um, but this is, a, this is a basic thing. You know, we, we have the ability to send back people that should not be here. It's just a question of will we. Um, and yeah, I tend not to lean optimistic, but I can't help but shake the feeling that maybe something was learned in the last eight years, if not by Trump, then by the people around him. Like I, I feel like uh, the fact that we can openly have a conversation about uh, repatriation or expatriation, uh, I, I think something is developing positively here. So if, if there has been the will to do it, it, there, it certainly wasn't there in 2008, wasn't there in 2012, probably not 2016, certainly not right now under this administration. I, I think that this is your next best hope is the what's coming next. Um, is hope, I, I can only hope. Yeah, it's amazing that illegal immigration is the only crime that has a two-second statute of limitations. Yeah, it's just immediately, oh, sorry, there's nothing we can do. I mean, he's over the border now. I mean, just, oh, I mean, he, he already committed the murder. It's two seconds later. There's nothing we can do. There's, there's right. no action that can be taken. It's, the, 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 it's no solution to that problem. Yeah, that is a, an amazing thing. I think you're right. I think that there is a growing understanding uh even on the left that things are out of control with this so they're, they're not going to stop themselves obviously it's it's a large part of their their plan to to kind of make sure democracy is in their favor in perpetuity however i i think there is a growing uh desire to see real action taken on this uh the, again i think the key thing is going to be pressure it, it, trump being there could matter again when he was president 
You did see more enforcement. You did see numbers down. Just people knowing, again, I said this uh, before in a previous episode, but just knowing people coming across the border is actually a high risk activity for them. They have to pay a lot of money, obviously. A lot of times they're paying their life savings. They're putting themselves in very dangerous situations, especially women and children are often abused or trafficked, you know, human trafficking occurs because of this. They're, They're putting themselves at great risk to enter the United States. And the incentive to do this is once they get across the border, there's just no way they're getting sent back. There's no way they're getting turned away. Well, if you remove that guarantee, you automatically drop like the calculus just shifts immediately. Oh, I had a 100% chance basically of getting under the Biden administration. I have a way lower chance under the Trump administration. Am I really going to put myself through all this? Am I really going to gamble my entire life savings? Am I really going to put my child in this dangerous situation? All of that calculus changes. But obviously, I think that you need a big change uh, that can only come again if the states are willing to take take action. That's why Greg Abbott's actions matter so much. And the fallout from that is going to be huge. Right. And they, they can't become complacent if their guy wins. They can't they can't start thinking that just because the election went their way that they don't have to enforce their own border now. It's, it's clear this needs to be done in coalition with the feds. Right. This, this um, needs to be an ongoing mission that is assumed by all uh, all governors, not something that is uh, you, you just you. Oh, we, we solved this flashpoint and now we can go back to normal. Right. And uh, just this is sort of secondary, but also uh, the super chat asks, uh, you know, what what else would happen? Obviously, we're not taking the deal. Um, but um, what's the day one plan? The other thing might be in the education system. There needs to you need to break this uh, cultic uh, adherence to this idea that immigration is always positive, always has been positive in American history, and that we're a nation of immigrants. It doesn't bear out. Uh, and even then, if you want to take this in a left wing uh, direction, it doesn't even work there either. Um, every native tribe's oral history talks about arriving from somewhere destroying another tribe or being destroyed by another tribe that arrives from the Great Plains up to the, out to the west or, or the east or wherever else they're coming from. Uh, I mean, they too get to share in this, in this version of a history where immigration and settling is evil. So um, I, the, a good thing to do would be to actually start uh, checking over what is allowed in the classrooms and breaking this idea that immigration is just a good thing in and of itself. There needs to be an actual... Uh, I guess you would say academic treatment of the uh, subject if you want to be neutral. Well, and, and the GOP has to get over this fear that talking about that subject is going to like lose them the Hispanic vote or something. Actually, that's very clearly not the case when they have chosen to be more forceful on this. Hispanics who are citizens have actually agreed with them for the most part. You see guys like Trump making gains in that community. You see governors like DeSantis making vast gains in that community and they're not they're doing it by talking about the need for borders and immigration control so the idea that that it's good to pander by saying oh well no you know that this is always an unmitigated good no many of the people of the very group you're trying to pander to don't agree with that they actually want to see law and order they want to see border control they want to see the united states stay the united states and they want to see that happen by making sure that large amount of people are entering the uh, United States illegally. So uh, love that the GOP needs to shift. All right, guys, well, make sure that you're checking out Ryan's work. Make sure you're checking out uh, his Twitter and his YouTube channel. And of course, if this is your first time coming by my channel, please make sure that you go ahead and subscribe. Uh, and of course, also make sure that you hit the notifications so you know when these streams go live. And if you'd like to get these broadcasts as podcasts, please make sure that you go ahead and subscribe to the Or McIntyre Show on your favorite podcast platform. When you do, Leave a rating or review. It really helps with the algorithm. Thanks for watching, guys. And as always, I'll talk to you next time.